Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of The Flying Girl by L. Frank Baum. The Flying Girl was written by Baum under the pen name Edith Van Dyne in 1911. In the book, Baum pursued an innovative blending of genres to create a feminist adventure melodrama. The novel tells the story of Orissa Kane, the sister of a young man who is designing and building his own flying machine. The 17-year-old Orissa provides financial support for her brother, Stephen Kane, and their blind mother through her office job, while Stephen concentrates on his invention. She also supports Steve's work emotionally, urging him forward. The story involves commercial and technical competition and sabotage by a competitor. We will leave it to the story to tell you how Orissa becomes the Flying Girl. And now, the Flying Girl. Chapter 1. Orissa May I go now, Mr. Burton? asked Orissa. He looked up from his desk, stared a moment, and nodded. It was doubtful if he saw the girl, for his eyes had an introspective expression. Orissa went to a cabinet wardrobe and took down her coat and hat. Turning around to put them on, she moved a chair, which squeaked on the polished floor. The sound made Mr. Burton shudder and aroused him as her speech had not done. "'Why, Miss Kane!' he exclaimed, regarding her with surprise. "'It is only four o'clock.' "'I know, sir,' said Orissa uneasily. "'But the mail is ready, and all the deeds and transfers have been made out for you to sign. I—I I wanted an extra hour tonight, so I worked during lunchtime.' "'Oh, very well,' he said stiffly. But I do not approve of this irregularity, Miss Kane, and you may as well understand it. I engage your services by the week and expect you to keep regular hours. Oh, I'm sorry. I won't go then, she replied, turning to hang up her coat. Yes, you will. For this afternoon I excuse you, he said, turning again to his papers. Orissa did not wish to offend her employer. Indeed, she could not afford to. This was her first position, and because she was young and girlish in appearance, she had found it difficult to secure a place. Perhaps it was because she had applied to Mr. Burton during one of his fits of abstraction that she obtained the position at all. But she was competent to do her work and performed it so much better than any secretary the real estate agent had had before. He would have been loath to lose her if she was dismissed. But Orissa did not know that and hesitated on what to do. Run along, Miss Kane, said her employer impatiently. I insist upon it, for tonight at least. So being very anxious to get home early, 
The girl accepted the permission and left the office, feeling, however, a little guilty for having abridged her time there. She had a long ride before her. Leaving the office at four o'clock meant reaching home 40 minutes later. So she hurried across the street and boarded a car marked Beverly. Los Angeles is a big city because it is spread from the Pacific Ocean to the mountains, an extreme distance of more than 30 miles. Yet it is of larger extent than that would indicate, as country villages for many miles in every direction are really suburbs of the metropolis of Southern California, and the inhabitants ride daily into the city for business or shopping. It was toward one of these outlying districts that Orissa Kane was now bound. They have rapid transit in the southwest, and the car, headed toward the north but ultimately destined to reach the sea by way of several villages, fairly flew along the tracks. It was August, and a glaring sun held possession of a cloudless sky. But the ocean breeze, which always arrived punctually in the middle of the afternoon, rendered the air balmy and invigorating. It was seldom that this young girl appeared anywhere in public without attracting attention of anyone who chanced to glance into her sweet face. Its contours were almost perfect, the coloring exquisite. In addition, she had a slender form which she carried with exceeding grace and modesty, and a winning demeanor that was more demure and unconscious than shy. Such a charming personality should have been clothed in handsome raiment, but alas, poor Orissa's gown was the simplest of cheap dresses and of the ready-made variety the department stores sell in their basements. It was not unbecoming, nor was the coarse straw hat with its yard of cotton-back ribbon. Yet the case was stated today very succinctly by a middle-aged gentleman who sat with his wife in the car seat just behind Orissa. That girl was our daughter, he said. I'd dress her nicely if it took half my income to do it. Great Caesar's ghost! Hasn't she anyone to love her or care for her? She seems to me like a beautiful piece of bric-a-brac, something to set on a pedestal and deck with jewels and laces for all to admire. Oh, phooey, returned the lady. A girl like that will be admired whatever she wears. Orissa had plenty of love bestowed by those nearest and dearest to her, but circumstances had reduced the family fortunes to a minimum and the girl was herself to blame for a share of the poverty the Canes now endured. The car led her off at a wayside station between two villages. It was in a depression that might properly be termed a valley, though of small extent, and as the car rushed on and left her standing beside a group of tall palms, it at first appeared there were no houses at all in the neighborhood. But that was not so. A well-defined path led into a thicket of evergreens, and then wound through a large orange orchard. Beyond this was a vine-covered bungalow of the type so universal in California, artistic to view, but quite inexpensive in construction. High hedges of privet surrounded the place, but above this, in the space back of the house, rose the canvas-covered top of a huge shed, something so unusual and inappropriate in a place of this character that it would have caused a stranger to pause and gape with astonishment. Orissa, however, merely glanced at the tent-like structure as she hurried along the path. She turned in at the open door of the bungalow, tossed hat and jacket into a chair, and then went to where a sweet-faced woman sat in a Morris chair knitting. 
In a moment, you would have guessed she was Orissa's mother, for although the features were worn and thin, there was a striking resemblance between them and those of the fresh young girl stooping to kiss her. Mrs. Kane's eyes were the same turquoise blue as her daughter's, but although bright and wide open, they lacked any expression, for they saw nothing at all in our big, beautiful world. Aren't you home early, dear? she asked. A whole hour, said Orissa. But I promised Steve I'd try to get home at this time, for he wants me to help him. Can I do anything for you first, Mama? No, was the reply. I am quite comfortable. Run along if Steve wants you. Then she added in a playful tone, Will there be any supper tonight? Oh, yes indeed, Mama. I'll break away in good season, never fear. Last night I got into the crush of the rush hour, and the car was detained, so both Steve and I forgot all about supper. I'll run and change my dress now. I'm afraid that boy is working too hard, said Mrs. Kane, sighing. The days are not half long enough for him, and he keeps in his workshop or hangar, or whatever you call it, half the night. That's true, returned Orissa with a laugh. But it's not work for Steve, you know. It's play. He's like a child with a new toy. I hope it will not prove a toy in the end, remarked Mrs. Kane gravely. So much depends upon his success. Don't worry, Mama, said the girl brightly. Steve is making our fortune, I'm sure. But as she discarded her work dress for a dark gingham in her little chamber, Orissa's face was more serious than her words, and she wondered, as she had wondered hundreds of times, whether her brother's great venture would bring them ruin or fortune.